0: i'm matt dixon and welcome to the purple patch podcast the mission of purple patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential through the lens of athletic potential you reach your human potential the purpose of this podcast is to help time starved people everywhere integrate sport into life and welcome to the purple patch podcast this is as ever your host matt dixon and this week well we have a guest Yes, it's been a while, but in fact, we have a couple of guests over the next few weeks. And today, Melindy Elmore, a woman who knows how to say the word process correctly. Listen up, Americans, process, listen and learn. But beyond that, Melindy, well, she's an incredible woman and a wonderful athlete. Let me give you a little bit of insight into Melinda's athletic accolades if you haven't heard them. She's Canadian. She's an Olympian, a track star. She runs very, very fast, 402 for 1,500 meters, and following her glittering, we might call it track career, she transitioned to triathlete. She became a purple patch professional athlete. I actually had the privilege of coaching Melindi for a couple of years. And on route, she went to Man distance, eight hours and 57 minutes in her Man debut. I think that is the fourth fastest ever. And she did this while managing life with a one-year-old newborn baby. After the second child, Melindy went back to running. She thought she'd pop into a marathon. Her time, two hours and 32 minutes. Once again, that is very, very fast. Today, we find her plotting a course towards qualification in another Olympic games, edging on 40 years of age, a mum of two. It's simply a great conversation with so many insights on so many areas, coming back from injury, managing life as a mum, the careers and the ups and downs of the nonlinear progression towards great performance. This week, no word of the week, no jingle. I know, I hear the collective groan. But that's because we want to get straight into the conversation. But just before we do, I want to tell you about a couple of things. First, you guys listening, try nerds. It is f- coming up to the Ironman 70.3 World Championships. And this year, France, the wonderful town on the Cote d'Azur, Nice. And I'm going. I'm heading that way. I'm going to come and watch... The 63 Purple Patch athletes that have qualified and are competing in the event, including three of our pros. And we're going to do some fun stuff. At 1.30 local time, we're going to do a live event where people can come and listen and talk about the race. The Purple Patch pros will be there. But we're also going to do a live stream, including the pros The folks at Precision Hydration, Andy Blow will be joining me and we're going to talk all about the race, some of the advice of tackling these events, some stuff specific to this race and we might even make a few predictions. I also want to tell you about a feature that we're going to be adding, educational and funny stories from the squaddies, those athletes in the squad program. A very short, little blurb, but as the community has really exploded over the coming month or so, We've provided already so many added anecdotes and funny stories. Many of them, I think, are really educational and worth the story. And so if you want to learn more about squad, you can head right now to purplepatchfitness.com. Check out the squad page. You can see what it's all about. But our squaddies deserve a little recognition. So we're going to add about a two-minute piece each week that allows me to give you a little insight into some of the workouts and some of the reasons that we're prescribing it, as well as, I'm sure, doing some funny stories. And finally, stay tuned in the coming weeks for a little competition. Our mission is to get to a 1,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Right now, we're about 300 reviews. Lots of them, I'm glad and humbled to say, have been pretty positive. But we've got a random arbitrary quest. We want a 1,000 people to place their reviews. So, of course, we'd love it if you could head to Apple Podcasts, pop in a nice positive review It really helps us extend the listenership and really reach more people in the world of performance. But we're gonna put some bait. We're gonna let you into a secret competition coming. But I promise you, that if we get to a thousand reviews, it's gonna probably involve the result of me doing something very, very silly. And we'll share the results. But it's gonna be up to you around what that silly thing is. There's my teaser. That's all I'm gonna say but stay tuned in the coming weeks and you're gonna hear what it's all about. For now, get over to Apple Podcasts, deliver the review. Now, let's get on with the story with Melindy. I think you're gonna love this. A word. We will say that Melindy's podcast or her microphone isn't fantastic in terms of quality in this interview. What is fantastic is the content. And so, please excuse we tried to clean it up as much as possible. It's good enough. You can listen. But we're certainly not talking about audio quality that is worthy of Purple Patch in our studio. But let's get on with the conversation. Thanks for joining, Lindy. Here we go. All right, folks. It is, as we like to say, the meat and potatoes. And today. We have a very special uh, guest. In fact, we have a guest that is by request from one of our professional athletes, Chelsea Sedaro. We are joined by Melindy Elmore. Melindy, welcome. Howdy. How does it feel? You've got one of our Purple Patch Pros requesting for a former Purple Patch Pro, but very accomplished athlete to come and join us. They are inspired by you. So what an honor, huh?
1: Very cool. And actually, um, Chelsea probably doesn't know this, but I got to see her win uh, the 70.3 in Indian Wells um, last December. So I was on course cheering for her. And that's so cool that she even knows who I am because I certainly was really uh, inspired by her on that day.
0: Well, I'll tell you that she was at swimming practice a couple of weeks ago and she said, I've got a podcast guest for you. (laughs) And I said, okay, uh, it's not very often that sort of one of the pros, who do you want to hear? She said, Melindy Elmore. I said, Melindy, you know that I used to coach Melindy. I said, what, why are you interested in Melindy outside of the obvious? And she said, because she's a badass. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Twice, <yeah. laughs> and and as we get into it we're going we're going to be very conversational today but uh, I want to really sort of dry it so we can frame the conversational a bit we're going to drive through three main areas which is some of the the experience of a transition of as I call it, sort of three seasons. You're like a Netflix show, Melinda. You you started with the the season one, which was running, and then we went to multi sport and triathlon, Ironman racing. That was your season two, and now you're back to running. So I think there's some really interesting stuff to unpack in there. I also want to dive into the value or the journey of of being a a mum and an athlete. You're a, you're a mum of two. And finally, I, I want to dive into some of the lessons, some of the growth that you've been through as an athlete from a, a puppy all the way to who you are now as a, as a sensible adult and actual coach. And speaking of coaching, before we, we unpack your history a little bit, very randomly just this morning, your name came up in conversation. And uh, I want to start with this because I was having a, a meeting, a coffee actually, with someone that you might know, Dina Evans. Oh, oh, I, I love Dina. Dina. She's awesome. Dina, for, for everyone listening, is a, a fantastic running coach um, of Stanford uh, national team. One of, I think, for, for, for many athletes, the one of the legends of coaching in the sport. And I said, oh, I'm having a conversation with Melindy this afternoon. And she said something that I thought was really worth sharing for, for listeners, and I'm not sure if you knew about it. She said, I started coaching I, as part of the coaching team for Melindy when Melindy was a sophomore, and there was one thing – that I remember about meeting Melindy, and that's that it was very clear when she was on her journey as a collegiate athlete that her approach to running was that it was a lifelong endeavor rather than just a chapter in her book and, and I thought that was a really nice compliment and something to remember as the mindset of you as you now you've been through these different seasons as I call it so I thought I'd share that with you yeah
1: thank you
0: You're good stuff well, let's let's dive in, and I want to, as I do with all guests on the show, I want to actually start at the very basics because I think it's important to understand the framing of uh, of someone growing up. So, give me, give the listeners at home, some context: your family, where you grow up, your background. Not going into sports, but education, home life. What was your life like growing up? Oh,
1: i had a great life growing up, and I think that uh, that's you know. I always step back and say it's such a privilege to be able to be in sport and have had the opportunities to do this because there's a lot of people who who may have made great athletes but weren't given the foundation and support, the support at home to pursue their passion and their love um, and to be able to, you know, Get an education while i'm doing it and to see the world and make friends and family so i think that's one of the things underlying this journey is just those all those experiences through sport but um i guess first and foremost i grew up in kelowna bc canada and i live here currently again so i i spent my high school years here um, and had amazingly supportive parents who exposed me to a ton of different sports and activities they didn't really plan to create an athlete in fact my mom put me in soccer when i was five because she thought i was becoming a bit lazy um (laughs) i think sometimes she regrets that because i didn't stop running after that moment um but my parents were like the perfect balance of being encouraging and supportive but not trying to live vicariously through me or push me to to do anything in particular or achieve anything i think that's really key i think um a lot of athletes might be pushed too young and too hard, and then it needs to come sort of from within. Yeah. Um, and I went off to Stanford for five years, and that was a great learning experience, both, you know, formally in education and in just like experiences, which are more important. And then went back to Canada, did a master's degree at University of Calgary, moved back to Kelowna, and then, you know, that's kind of where, where, uh, where we are now.
0: What what was your education in both both sort of masters and, and undergraduate?
1: So my undergrad was um, at Stanford in international relations and a minor in French, and then my master's was in environmental design, which is like city planning. Basically, was kind of my focus, and then I actually went back to school again a few years later and did a, um, another degree in education. So I'm
0: not allowed to go get any more degrees, my husband says. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 Graham has put the kibosh on it. Okay, good stuff. And and sporting growing up, you mentioned soccer. One yeah. of the things I find interesting, the vast majority of highly successful athletes were very much multi-sport. And I don't mean multi-sport by triathlon, but I mean multiple sports mm-hmm. growing up. You, you mentioned getting to soccer first. So I guess firstly, was was your family an outdoors family? Because you grew up in British Columbia. There's an outdoor playground. Was that a part of your life? And then talk to me about your transition into sports globally. What did you do as sports growing up?
1: Yeah, we definitely did a lot of sports growing up. We live in a four-season playground in the Okanagan. We're really lucky to have a ski mountain that's an hour away. So in the winter, we would ski and cross-country ski, but mostly downhill ski because that's what my parents love to do. And in the summer we would water ski, so my parents would wake us up early in the morning and we would go down and jump in our boat and go for some poles in the lake, and then my parents would drop us off at school, at high school on the way home. Um, We did a lot of things as family, biking, skiing, rollerblading, just that kind of fun stuff. But then at the same time, my mom made sure that we were in lots of activities, um, gymnastics, skating, swimming, soccer, field hockey. So we were exposed to a lot of different activities and um, really didn't become super focused primarily on running until I was probably grade 11 or 12, so carried all those sports right through my whole childhood basically.
0: Right. So, um, unbelievably, it's uh, unbelievably sort of complex myriad of, of activities in, in multiple planes, interestingly. Yeah. Uh, and, and as you turned on the key for running, as as this became 11th or 12th grade became sort of the thing, at the time did you have many or anyone telling you that that you were going to be, quote, very good?
1: Yeah, I think it was kind of obvious from an early age that I was very competitive and that I really loved to run. But it was still organic. It would be one of those things where I would ask my parents if they could time me while I ran as fast as I could around the block. And then I would kind of compare my time from the previous week. So it was sort of that feeling too of like comparing myself against myself and, and wanting to improve. Um, and, you know, the school, like, there was a school PE challenge of running a mile. That that to me was so much more important than, you know, winning the spelling bee contest, whatever. So... Like I was totally driven to win any running race, whether it was informal against my sister or at the school or myself. And I I remember coming home one day when I was about, I don't know, eight or nine, and I was running down the street as fast as I could from getting the mail and I said to my dad, I feel like when I'm running, my feet don't even touch the ground and I'm just flying. And he said, you've got a gift. And your gift is running. And kind of, I, I have this moment of remembering back and thinking, oh, people have, like, talents and things like running. <laughs> but it was just that I loved to do it. It was like it made me feel free, and, and it was what I just gravitated towards. And it eventually, of course, led into a structured training and racing and in a competitive field. But it came, like Dina says, from, from the beginning, just a love of, of moving in that plane of running.
0: And when uh... – when was it in your running career, and maybe it was before your running career, that the words Olympic Games came into your mind or your voice?
1: Well, when I was about fifteen, so like freshman in, in high school in the states, and grade nine in Canada, um, I had a couple moments that that sort of stood out. Um, and they were kind of—they totally caught me by surprise, and my coach by surprise. So I was sort of an under-trainer, over-performer. Um, I was playing soccer and field hockey and doing all these other sports, so I couldn't train very much. I wasn't going to very many track practices, but I couldn't do the races. And um, one of the day, one of the meets, my coach really wanted me to do the senior. BC Provincial Championships, a senior being about 20, and I was 15, because I missed all the other age group competitions because of my soccer schedule. And I had one more meet uh, later in the season. He's like, you need to you need to race. You haven't raced all season. You need to go do this. meet. it was the only weekend left. So I went down, and I lined up against the likes of Leah Pels, who was the next year fourth at the Olympics in Atlanta, who was a huge role model of mine. Mm-hmm. And all these women who run national teams, and I was just this little fifteen year old skinny naked. And I placed really well against them. I didn't I didn't really consider that they just because they were older or more experienced that I shouldn't still just dig my nose in it and get into the race and, and run hard. To so finish the race and my coach Mike Ben who'll probably talk about a lot of mysteries because coached me since I was 12 right through the end of my professional track and field career. Um, he's like, "Do you have any idea how fast you just ran?" And I was 15, so I ran 4:26, which is uh, I don't know, like 4, I don't know, 4:44 for the mile, something like that, whatever mm-hmm. the conversion would be. And it was like a 20-second personal best, and he was, he was shocked. He's like, "That's really, 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 really fast for your age, or just in general." And I had no, uh, no clue, I was just clueless. I was like, okay, cool, that was a fun race. And the next day I had to line up against the same women and I ran 209 the 800. He's like, that's really, really fast. And now i back and now since I coach youth, if I had somebody who ran that fast at 15. i like, wow, this is super exciting. <laughs> Goodness, yeah, you understand <laughs> his passion nowadays. What's that?
0: I said, that? you understand his excitement now that you're coaching.
1: totally totally and i totally get what what the highs of coaching are now because i love coaching as well and i've got i've had some athletes have these kind of performances are like wow this is so awesome seeing them do so well but um yeah anyways after that it started to kind of percolate a little bit and my coach was really great at kind of keeping a long-term vision but Trying to get me to believe that one day I could be as good as those
0: women that I was racing against because here you know, I was doing pretty well at 15 against them. Let's jump forward let's uh let's talk about Stanford very briefly but you know you ran at Stanford you're in a a very good team uh in fact you know some of the names I think of the people around your time Lauren Fleshman uh Jesse Thomas Ryan Hall, uh, many more around that. But uh, you also represented Canada at the Olympic Games. In this phase of your running career, as as I'm calling it, season one of your athletic career, and, and I want to ask you this question with context, because I'm assuming it's changed now. What drove you in this phase of life? What was the meaning of sport?
1: Well, actually, I had a pretty tough transition from high school success to university. So I had, um, I think, four stress factors in the first two years, and um, I was actually running with an athlete that I coached this morning, um, who's off to Northern Arizona in a couple of weeks. And she's like, "Oh, how did you place at NCAA cross country championships?" Said so I only ran once. I was eleven. It's my fifth year. My first two years, I was injured. My third year, I didn't make a team. My fourth year, I went abroad because I was needed a break from running. <laughs> my fifth year, I ran NCAA. So I had a really kind of up-and-down collegiate career and was sort of, in a way, overshadowed by a lot of the talent on the team or had kind of doubts in my ability at the time and just kind of felt a bit lost, but knew at the end of the day that I did still love running and want to pursue it long-term. Um, so I, I think that all of that plays into, you know, the ups and downs that people have through their, through their sports career and their lives that things don't always go in a, you know, continue on the direction that you want without seeing setbacks along the way.
0: And and when you come out of that, it leads into my follow-up, which was in that phase, now that with the benefit of, of. Uh, 2020 hindsight and of course going through various different experiences in elite sport have you sort of gone through and reflected and thought about the biggest mistakes or, or lessons from that that first season the runner season yeah
1: well I mean again without within even the first season it was a pretty long season right it, it spanned from let's say I was 15 to when I retired at 32 so there were a lot of chapters along the way and I think um towards the End of it, I was probably bogged down in the results and the politics and trying to get into races and sponsorship and kind of the the stuff around outside and lost kind of the core of why I did it in the first place. What brought me to running when I was. You know, five, six, seven, eight years old as a little kid in the, in the elementary school races, or in high school, naively lining up against the, the best in Canada, mm-hmm. where it's just like trying to be my best and trying to run free and trying to um, see what I could do and be challenged by myself. And and I think when you get consumed by the result or the outcome that you're desiring, that you kind of can lose track of the whole reason you're doing it in the first place. Um and that's where I feel like I'm back to now, but at the end of C, chapter one, I, I had to step away because I knew i sort of lost that for a little while.
0: We can stop right there. What you just said is the the most important thing for listeners to uh to not just hear but really listen and hear too, because that I think that's an essential part of of success criterion for for all levels of athletes. And and it's so easy to get distracted by either external pressures and And you had that, you had well-documented struggles and failures in many ways and frustrations. I mean, we we talked a little bit about the non-linear progression from a musculoskeletal health standpoint, an injury standpoint. You also, I think, you know, and we don't need to dig into this, but your Olympic Games qualifications were, were primarily impeded by ridiculous times time standards that were grossly elevated by performances of now banned uh athletes admitted banned athletes or a part of a performance enhancing drugs so rather than sort of diving into those injustices um you know because it's not that much of a pleasant topic and it is now history even though you can't have it back but i want to talk about failure and uh and setbacks and uh and I want to understand you as an athlete of how you manage both the frustrations politically and uh, and everything that happened there and the challenges of injury and uh what what are some of the lessons or the management tools that that you have applied over your career um, Well, I think, I think it's, it's
1: important, important for people, people to realize that athletes. At all levels, age group athletes, professional athletes, you know, beginner athletes go through ups and downs within their performances and their training and, and in motivation and in their performance as well. Um, and that, that's normal. And I, I think that everyone, when they're in that funk where they're injured or things are going well, they feel like they're the only person in the world who's ever had that experience and that it's sort um, of the end of the mm-hmm. world. And I certainly I felt, felt like that, too, and at, at times when I was younger and would become miserable and consumed by it, right, and it's just so unfair and you're stuck cross-training um, or not able to do what you want. I think now that I'm older and now that I'm coached as well, it's like, well, it's not that big a deal. It, it is not to trivialize things because it is important to us to do well and to be healthy and doing what we enjoy, but in the, the greater scheme of things, this too shall pass. Um and you gotta get through it, and you gotta find some way to keep yourself ha- happy and healthy and engaged in other areas of your life. Which for me, now is really important with my kids and my other work. That it's not the end all be all. If a race doesn't go well, or training doesn't go well, or if I'm, you know, have a little injury or something, you just kind of move forward. Um, so I didn't really I feel like, you know, when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't have a greater perspective of that. It was just. This is awful, <laughs> and I, I'm miserable, and, and I hate doing this. this. And um, and now yeah, it's, it's like, you know what? I'll just
0: do one it. I'll just move on. You, by the way, it's quite interesting as you talk about this. You are talking like you're a coach more than an athlete, which I find is a is a really interesting thing. I think I will pay you a small compliment. You're going to be a very good coach, <laughs> uh, or oh, you are. Right? I can clearly see. But uh, let's talk about Carlos your son oh, no. charlie and uh 2014 uh yeah, that's when i remember meeting charlie when he was a very young puppy
1: 2015
0: that's right so uh so 2014 is when you had uh charlie who i instantly yep. called carlos of course, of course. Uh, and uh and your partner by the way graham hood uh, running is in the family uh, in fact i my, my one story of graham he was very very brave on a single run that he did with me in arizona that was rather hot and he and he managed to keep up with me for two hours although i, I should mention that he's i think a two-time olympian yes yeah? so uh he, he did note that i ran like a donkey dipped in cement i do want to point <laughs> out so uh so he was unforgiving in his assessment of my running ability
1: so, <laughs> But well, re- let's through his swimming too right, to carefully. <laughs> he refused
0: to go for a swim with me afterwards. I want to point that out as well. But uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> I, I,
0: and and but the reason I bring up family, wonderful family that you do have, interesting perspective there. Uh, having kids, get getting married, and and having kids, of course, it it, it evolves. And so, what perspective did you gain on sport globally uh, as you went through that process?
1: Well, you know, when I retired from track and field in 2012, I knew I was done. Um, I stepped off the track at the Canadian national championships and I'd won the race and I wasn't going to the Olympics and I was, you know, I need a break. I'm ready to move on in life. I wanted to go back to school, become a teacher. And I really, really, really did want I started to have, start to have a family. Um, I was 32 and I felt super old by then. Now, of course I look back and think, ah, oh, I'm still a baby. <laughs> um, because that was seven years ago now, and um, it was actually, you know, that was really important to me was was to have Charlie or whoever would, you know, whatever child ended up coming. It was Charlie, um, and you know, in some ways, I think if I had known at the time that thirty two wasn't so old, I would have may- maybe come back to the track like a lot of women are doing now. But at the time, even seven years ago, it seemed like once you have a baby in sport. Yeah, you move on. Um, but I still of course loved to train and I loved to race and I was intrigued by multi-sport because Graham had dabbled in it and was doing Ironman in 70.3 and I jump on a bike with him and that, that looks like a lot of fun. Um, and so I just kind of returned to sport as a as a way of it being fun to train and to race and, and to actually jump in races with him when we were traveling. Um, but I also needed it because I had this, this infant, this demanding infant at home and I desperately needed some space from him every day to be a better parent. And it was like if I could get out for a run or a bike ride or get on my trainer or get to the pool for an hour and put him in a child minding, I was a better parent for the rest of the day. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of parents maybe feel guilty about not being with their kids all the time, but I think that sometimes you need to step away from them to be a better parent. And,
0: and I think it's incredibly healthy for the kid, even at a young age. And in fact, I will extend, I'll just pontificate for one moment there with, with people that are have very senior positions in working and their, their focus is obsessively about working and they feel guilt about having something for themselves. But ultimately, they become a better leader, a more effective employee, whatever it might be, to be able to have an escape, a time to breathe, a time to actually rejuvenate emotionally and physically, of course, with things like sleep. And I think it's really yeah. critical. So the parallels there are, are very, very important as, uh, as my opinion. So you, you, you needed a little escape. So you thought Iron Man something easy and accessible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so as, as you, as you took on this mental and, and for, for listeners at home that, that don't know, uh, that, that's when we connected and, uh, and we went on our coach athlete journey with each other which was incredibly rewarding for for myself uh i hope it was mildly rewarding for you but uh, um but i'd love to i'd love to know the first uh, the biggest challenges in multi sport for you less about the sort of oh i was had had charlie and, and it was obviously time consuming but the shift from running and everything that you knew from 15 to 32. It's a, it's a long time. It's, it's almost two decades to now you're doing this brand new sport. Where were the biggest challenges for you?
1: Well, you saw me swim, right?
0: <laughs> I, I did. And in fact, that's, that was the, the cause of my retina surgery, actually. But luckily, I can see it now. <laughs> you know,
1: it is really hard to learn to be a good swimmer in your 30s. <laughs> I just remember people. I don't think you said it to me, but when I first initially in Kelowna joined the Masters Swim Club, and people talk about a high elbow, it took me years to have any idea what they even meant by a high elbow. I thought you were just trying to keep your elbow as high as possible in the water. I mean, not in the water, like in the air, as you're as you're doing your your your, your recovery stroke. Like all these things that people throw around jargon, right? That's sports specific. That you just if you take a newbie, they have no clue what you're talking about. Um yeah, so getting used to the water was was my key. And I learned to enjoy swimming, and a lot of runners will say, Oh, I can't do track lines, I can't swim. Like, well, you know what, you can, because I was not a good swimmer when I started, and that didn't stop me. Um, I didn't become as good a swimmer as I would have liked, but I became competent. Um and then you know, jumping in the in the pro field, of course, just uh magnified my weakness of swimming. But I was proud of myself for learning a new skill and putting a lot of effort into becoming better at something that didn't come naturally. Um, so swimming, absolutely. Um, the logistics of course of triathlon is, is a lot more complicated too than running. So that whole mindset of a long day, a lot of gear, a lot of equipment, a lot of moving parts is, is, is a big difference.
0: What about epiphany points? What I mean by that is, is there anything out of your journey when you reflect because now, we'll go into season three of your athletic career, which is now marathon running, but was there anything that through the journey you went through in triathlon and Ironman training that were aha moments that so you thought, oh, that caught me by surprise or that's something that I can, that you would now apply, for example?
1: Yeah, um, well, I, I learned, learned a lot to working with you <laughs> and I think about... Many of those key messages through my through my marathon. Um, things like, I think as a runner, as a track and field middle distance runner, a four minute race, we had this idea that recovery meant a day off. Right? You don't you don't you don't do anything on a day off. Where uh, getting used to that mentality of you can recover. Actively through a training week, you can you know you can have that built into the context of your training. So an easy run, an easy swimmer, an easy cycle helps you probably more than a day completely off. So that was kind of a revelation and something that I'm bringing into marathon as well, which is good because I don't think that you can do the appropriate training for marathon with this idea that you take you train six days and you take a day off every week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so now, like, a 60-minute run for an easy-paced run, as, as you would describe it, of like, go as slow as possible without losing your form, um, <laughs> is part of my training that, that before I would see it as a 60-minute run of, oh, gosh, that's, like, a pretty long run for a day off. Um, and just overall load, being able to handle more, um, the training days of Ironman are way more significant than a running day because you just can't do that much running in a day. Yeah, it's kind of pushed my self-imposed limits of what I can handle that that I can handle more than I thought I could and that I'm not intimidated now by a two or two and a half hour run in fact I'm just glad that it's not coming on the heels of a 5k swim or a four hour bike ride
0: (laughs) which is well let's talk about that running a marathon off of the off of the, the five hour bike ride, because for listeners that don't know your, your Ironman career, I mean, this, this incredibly accomplished runner, uh, season one, where your, your fastest 1500 was four, four oh, uh, two, four oh two. Yeah. How, how disappointing, but yeah, four oh two. And you can do the math, folks at home listening. I mean, it's incredible performance. Your first Ironman you did was one of the fastest debuts in amongst any athlete, any uh, professional female Ironman athlete you were under 9 hours in your first Ironman on a legitimate course riding <laughs> alone all day there were there were no sort of funky uh, short courses or, or you know draft benefits or anything so but that is a incredible uh, delta and I think not just physically which is the obvious thing mentally and the the shift of racing mindset that went from four hours four, four minutes i should say to just under nine hours how did you manage the shift in mindset was that was that really challenging or surprising for you um no i don't
1: think so i think you know a lot of people say oh what do you think about all day when you're racing an Ironman or training and i think there's just enough things to think about that keep you in the moment like your pace and your fueling, your nutrition and your form, and you can just keep playing over in your mind all the different pieces so really truly staying in the moment. And to me, that to me that talks to our emphasis on process. And a lot of people here are be process oriented, and that's to me what process oriented is: is trying to stay in the moment. So you're mindful of what's going on and not getting ahead of yourself. And so the time goes by really quickly. And it's the same as in track and field. Or the same analogy, you're, you're thinking tactically, you're thinking about where you are in the race, you're thinking about conserving, when you're going to make your moves, covering moves. So to me, that's what I love most about racing is that you're in this really deep focused state and time doesn't matter anymore. It could be nine hours, it could be two minutes, it doesn't really matter because your mind is completely absorbed with the task. And I think that's what you know people who get into meditation or yoga or whatever it is that are kind of their thing. That's yeah. probably the feeling
0: that they have, but I don't get it in your yoga <laughs> meditation. I get it by being physically active. It, it, and it, it, I mean exactly that, that: that time lapses because it's so process-focused. And in fact, I think that it's perf- it's guaranteed performance decline if you are thinking about outcome. So if you're well, thinking uh, about qu- yeah. whether it's qualification or or end result yeah. or time or anything like that, or thinking about yeah. history why was my swim bad or whatever it is? And it seems very obvious to state it, but I think it's key. Oh,
1: it's hundred percent. And it's really sometimes hard to get yourself out of the mindset when, when it's going down that path. Um, the, the, When people will say to me on the track and say, oh, I was looking at my splits and doing calculations, and like, oh, no, it's going to go bad. No, you cannot be thinking about splits and doing math in your head while you're running a race. Like, you just lost it right there. Because now you're thinking with your head and you're not feeling the performance anymore. Um, And you have to get out of your head.
0: Yes, we um, always talk about the inner animal. And uh, in today's culture, sporting culture, the the use of metrics which is a wonderful set of information to review and analyze but when mm-hmm. people are shackled by it they lose that that what we call inner animal just that the sense of totally. feeling and perspective
1: totally absolutely and i've been i've kind I've of been, been late to the game with metrics um i mean i know whenever it's you and Say oh! If <laughs> you haven't yeah. uploaded your files in, it would be usually brain that would do it because I would I've never been super metric driven except I think along the race, like marathon training and Ironman training, you, you need those parameters to keep you within a, in a within a range. Um, but you you have, in the end your your brain is the most powerful computer there is, um, and you have to kind of trust it to do the work.
0: We think like the. Uh, uh, w- Just before we started recording this, uh, Chelsea, actually, who we talked about at the top of the show, was on with our squaddies, our our squad athletes, doing a live Q&A, and uh, I talked about a question that I received, which was, what was the power that you told Chelsea to ride at at Santa Rosa? And so I asked her the question, Santa Rosa 70.3 was last weekend, and Chelsea, that was a sort of comeback race, and she had a fantastic performance and won. So I said, Chelsea, what was the, the power that I, I told you to ride your bike at? And she said, you did not say anything about metrics on anything am I, uh, unless I can't remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but that was it. It, it wasn't. It was. Uh, there's no shackles. There were no, no shackles around that. So. <laughs> How
1: about the time when um, I think I, think I asked, asked you what power I should ride at? And I threw out a number, number and you looked at me and, me and said, if you, if you do, do that, that, you will be blown to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you need to ride as hard as you can ride. It was a seventy point three. So that was basically my whole approach to you know the seventy point three bike ride. Is, am I riding as, as hard as I can, can ride? ride? Or am, am I weight dying?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just re- sounds good. Go really hard. You now that is world class coaching right there, isn't it? It's brilliant. Oh, can't think. Go as hard as you can. What a strategy. <laughs>
1: But it's like, well, it's a race. I mean, obviously you have to do some pacing in the long races, but ultimately the goal is to go as fast as you can go. <laughs>
0: there you go. Pretty simple. Keep it simple. Yeah. Let, let's talk about being a mum. And uh, the, the I, want, I want to dive into recovery a little bit. Uh, what well, you, you, you started the sport of Ironman and... You, you still are this one, this, this wonderful addition to your life. At the same time, I think every, every parent, mum and mum father to say it's also a stressor in your life, particularly in the early years. So what did that have an imp- Did that have an imprint on you around recovery at all?
1: You know what? I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think it's actually kind of a positive imprint. I mean, obviously there are some nights that you don't get as much sleep and you can't put your feet up and have a nap in the middle of the day when you want to unless you can course your kids into napping at the same time. Um, but for me, I think recovery, and for a lot of people, is as much emotional or energy system, energy, brain, mental energy as physical. So the time away from thinking about what you're doing in the sport and the obsession with, am I doing everything right? And to me, recovery might be just going to the playground now and being in the moment with my kids and recovering that way because I'm not, you know, obsessed. I'm, I'm, I'm away from it. And, yeah. and that's nice to have those breaks and not just be sitting dwelling about your next training session or analyzing how the past one went. And, um, i think that's you know i think that's important
0: too what about advice for for mums athletic mums or or mums that are athletes as well uh maybe one of the same but pregnancy the journey of postpartum the progression back to performance do you have any advice What, what would be your driving advice um well
1: it definitely is an individual journey everybody's you know, pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, postpartum journey is unique. So it's kind of hard to to do one size fits all. Obviously, uh, for me, and we talked about this when I, when I, so I left doing our triathlon and Ironman because I was pregnant and, you know, got into running off again afterwards. But when we had a chat, when I found out I was pregnant, it was like, you know what, we're going to put a hold on training um, and not... I didn't feel like I needed to do training sessions the whole time I was pregnant. It was this focus on just being fit and active and healthy, but not training per se, because as, as I see it, you're going to hit rock bottom anyways before you're going to climb out of the hole of delivery. So why be super fit anyways? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it's an important time to kind of listen to your body and scale back and be active during pregnancy, but not be so pressured to be uber fit the second that you can get back to, to running and take it or orga- or training and ticket organically. So when I started up, um, after the last baby, it, I don't know, it took me like four months or something to the point of running a decent amount or a decent pace because I, I wasn't that fit. So it happened, you know, in stages and gradually and progressively through the postpartum return. And I didn't have an agenda or a time, Time frame, the deadline that I had to do this race, or I had to be fit by this date. Um, when my body
0: was ready, I was ready. I, I think that's really important, and uh, and obviously it's not something I have been through. But the the and and this could be applied to injury as well. Putting fixed dates on things of this yeah. is when I need to be backed by on, and obviously coming out of what is a major physical event, uh, obviously a massive life event. But putting fixed dates around expectations or looking over the fence and thinking, well, my friend Jill went through this and so therefore I want to follow that timeline is, um, is just not recommended because it's, it's never going to be the same. It
1: might be quicker or slower. Oh, yeah. Might be the same. yeah, totally. I have an athlete right now who's in a bit of an injury cycle and, and she was really keen to get back running after her stress doctor was, you know, healed quote unquote, because these are again, it's process. And there was this, when, when can I reach, when can I be fit? And it's like, you mm-hmm. know what? Injury begets injury in a lot of ways. The the easiest way to get injured is just having to come off with an injury. And so you go down this rabbit hole of chasing these deadlines and this imposed pressure, and and it can lead to a pretty vicious cycle that, you know, a lot of people find themselves in. Um, in the the, the first place, if you've just been a little bit more patient and, and taken things a little slower, then maybe that, in the end, it would be faster overall in your return
0: yeah, and I'd add to that, that, one of the mistakes I think many people when they get injured is to, and we can use Chelsea again as an example, where Chelsea went through a uh an injury cycle over the last eight months. Uh, so really, you know, significant injury. But rather than just trying to treat the symptoms and get that injury better, she actually converted it to an opportunity to say, what do I need to do to from a muscular skeletal standpoint, make me really robust and strong. And it's very hard to do when you're training, you know, when you're you're sort of in full flight. And so rather than just trying to fix or rest the stress fracture or the Achilles issue or the hamstring pull, getting absolutely robust and strong and athletically functionally sound is a, is a wonderful opportunity and shifting the lens on that and then being really patient on the return of course. Otherwise you have these athletes that are quote, unluckily perpetually injured where in many ways, just a little bit more patience or a little bit more global perspective can break that cycle in, uh, in many ways. Um,
1: yeah. but by the I'm way, just to...
0: no, go, go ahead, go ahead, please.
1: I was, I was just thinking the whole time you were, were talking is that perspective was the word that, that was coming to my mind and then you said it global perspectives in the end. But I think that what Chelsea did was was an advantage to her both from a physical standpoint and focusing on some weaknesses and strengths, but mentally she, she dealt with that setback. Psychologically, really well. Like, okay, this is an opportunity instead of this is a negative. I'm going to be depressed about this. Is like, okay, so what doors are opening because I have the setback? What can I do instead to make myself better? And it gives you more purpose and and something to get excited about when things aren't going well. And instead of dwelling, you know, on what's not going well.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that that is as we sort of found ourselves down this very fruitful rabbit hole. But I think that when when someone does get injured. There there are sort of four phases in many ways. There's there's the grieving period which you must allow yourself to be frustrated and upset when it happens. But then after that X number of days or hours, you have to convert to action and it becomes Mm -hmm. sort of planning and there's obviously a healing period but there is a shift of mindset away from what can I not do to now what can I do? What opportunity Mm -hmm. can I find in this adversity you go on that journey, and then I think that there's the critical third stage, which many people, and this is where people fall into injury again, is that you might do everything. it's that that phase of going back to activity in the the sport or the discipline or the area that you have been injured in, and the ramp back up from activity to normal training. And that is, again, another phase where people start to lose patience because no one else has sympathy mm-hmm. and uh, no one cares anymore. And, and you have to be so patient rather than I'm back and I'm going to go. That is the phase that cannot be rushed because if you do that right, mm-hmm. then when you go back to full-fledged running or riding or swimming or whatever the sport might be, your chances of re-injury or a different injury are greatly reduced. And it, it takes tremendous patience and I think it also takes a team approach because you need accountability and perspective, which for any athlete is incredibly hard to navigate, I would say.
1: Yeah, I would absolutely agree. That last stage feels like it's never going to end. You think, oh, I've done my time off. I'm ready to go. Oh, wait, I'm doing a 30 second <laughs> run today. And it's going to take me six weeks to get where I can run a couple miles straight through and you just, you're, you're so, so done by then. Um, but, but you're, you're right. right. If you rush that stage, you will find yourself quickly
0: back where you started, where you came. Well, well, let's very quickly, briefly, because we, we've been already been talking for a, for a pretty good amount of time. But I do want to talk about season three, running uh, your marathon right now, or, or your your third chapter, as we call it. Different from when you were phase one of your running career. What are now your What's your mindset, your expectations, your goals? Where are you right now with running? What's your relationship with it?
1: Well, I'm really loving being kind of full circle back to where I started. And I'm going to talk about starting like 20 plus years ago. of just loving the sport again for myself. And I definitely have some goals that I'm excited about, um, but, but I feel, I feel like, like I've stripped, stripped away a lot of the external stuff that that became consuming in, in the end of my running career. And, and I wouldn't say my triathlon career. I think that was a separate mindset. That was more for reinvigoration and refresh as well. But I feel really refreshed in running and kind of re, this process of reinvention over the years has been really interesting of going from a middle distance runner to a triathlete to road racing marathon and it's like it's a challenge what can I do how good can I be I don't know I'm going to see I'm going to get out there and how fast can I go um I hope I can go fast enough to uh get a spot on the Olympic team next year in Tokyo and I'll be 40 years old when I race there and that's cool to me now because hey I didn't ever think that that was a possibility when I planned out my career as an athlete but if it doesn't happen then Life goes on. I'm okay with it, but it's a cool challenge that I'm excited about. Um, I'm excited about um, helping other people achieve their goals and, you know, helping people run fast and find perspective in their lives and, you know, having this great purpose that's not just all about my own performance as well.
0: Well, your your own performance was 2.32. and that That was your first marathon, yeah,
1: 2.32? Yeah, my first, yes, in January not
0: disappointment? Not under two thirds. but okay, all right. Uh, I'll tell you what: if you were still under my wing, I would have been disappointed. We would have had words, but uh, no. It, and and you know, you're seventh in in the race, and I mean, there's there's no doubt you created a lot of rumbles in the both the running world and the triathlon world. It made some people's heads spin, and and just massive respect. And across the purple patch, pros are just like fantastic. We're so happy for you, but. I have one question, one question from outside, and uh, and I wanted to give this because it's from Chelsea Sidaro. and uh, she wanted me to ask you this because I said Melinda's agreed to come on and have a conversation. She said, "Well, can you ask her this?" So here you go. She she's very interested to know now in this chapter three how your triathlon journey contributed to your your current marathon and half marathon success, and and perhaps the answer is it didn't,
1: but please tell me. <laughs> No, it was definitely an important part of the journey. I think if I had gone from track race to marathon, that then it, that then it would have been a, a different, a different outcome for sure. I think I needed that break, and I think you know we touched on it a bit before in terms of the idea of active recovery within within the training cycle, um, being able to handle more load. I think the mileage would have me initially, and. Um, you know having a better appreciation for fueling for hydration for pacing all those things that are important in triathlon that aren't in a 1500 meter race um i'd say you know when i stepped on the line uh for houston i was just really happy that i wasn't getting off the bike after a five hour bike ride and my hip flexors weren't already super super tight It's like, oh, I get to start off, like, not in glycogen, glycogen depletion. depletion, my hip clusters are loose, I'm, I'm wearing, wearing the right clothes for running.
0: What yeah, a this gift, is pretty yeah? good structural marathon. What, what a gift. Uh, what, what, and now that you're a coach, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. And, uh, you only have a, a couple of, uh, questions to go, Melindy, but I'm going to put, I'm going to ask you a coach's question here. And, um. When you now coach athletes and and you have seen many types of athletes, both as an athlete yourself in running, in triathlon, back to running and now as a coach, if you were to identify traits of the most successful, which, which would deliver the best chances of long-term success, what would you look for or what would you identify?
1: Oh, um, I think... One having that kind of that grittiness um, and having the desire and the fire to be good. Um, I, I would I would speak to someone who I was telling a story also this morning. Um, I coached a uh, she's almost nineteen, her name's terribly old, and she's super inspiring to me. She talked to NEU and I think she's got kind of that grittiness that's going to take her long term. She's got a fire in her eyes. But I was telling her about how I talked to Gabriella Stafford a few years ago, and she just set the Canadian record in 1500, which is um, which is a 30-something old record. She just set it last week. And I said, I talked to her a few years ago, and she had this, like, this grit, like, I'm just going to get it done kind of attitude. Um, so I think that that's kind of key, having that fire that's internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure, being able to have balance and perspective, though, having that grit, but also being able to take a step back and see the big picture and kind of realize where you fit in it, um, that it's not the end all be all, and that you don't have to obsess over every detail. I think that's a key for, for success in anything. Is, you know, if things don't go perfectly, that's okay. That's still part of the big picture. Um, sorry.
0: No, go ahead. You're on fire.
1: <laughs> I'd say um, perseverance because you can't. you your nothing comes overnight. So it's just the, the one step at a time, one run at a time, one week at a time, and it all builds. It's perseverance, and it's also patience, and it's also consistency. Um, that's probably more than five. Um, but I think those are all are, are all qualities besides having you know some ability and skill. But I think those are like personal characteristics that are that are important.
0: And if we remove the skill or innate ability, the characteristics that translate to anyone's personal performance in any endeavor, which I Absolutely. think is uh, really important. Yeah. Last question before my desert Island piece, which uh, <laughs> I'll surprise you with, but, uh, and I gave that, that piece to you in advance. So at least you've had a little bit of time to maybe concentrate <laughs> on it. But, uh, but I do, I'm always fascinated by this and you know, it wasn't, planning to answer this, mentors, uh, people that have been inspirations or mentors. Uh, I think that every successful person I've ever worked with embraces to some degree, either leadership, coaching or, or mentors. So who have been your mentors throughout your, your life, your career? Yeah,
1: I've been super fortunate to have amazing people in my life. Um, So So my coach for track, Mike Fantigan, like I said, he started when I was twelve or thirteen. He kind of plucked me off the field hockey uh, pitch one day and said he needed to come and join the track team because he'd seen me run some local races. And um, he coached me effectively for twenty years. I had a couple years at Stanford in 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 between where he wasn't directly in charge of my program, Uh, but super mentor uh, for me in his approach of communication and interpersonal relationships, um, coaching, building trust, that sort of thing Like he's, he's the art side of the science side of, you know, it's coaching art or science. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dina was uh, Evans, who you mentioned earlier in the conversation was also amazing. She came at the right time. Um, the right time for me at Stanford when I was, you know, in a bit of a wall in a bit of a funk, uh, and she's been a great mentor as well and done a lot for the running community. Um, you know, I really appreciated the short amount of time that we had to work together and, and, and what you put into your coaching and the, you know, all comprehensively through education and both this art and science side approach of, of coaching. Um, so I'd say like those, I'm pretty lucky that I've had great coaches and I've had, uh um, a lot of loyalty both ways, I'd say, from my coaches and ability to kind of build trust and build these long-term relationships, which I think is also key because coaching – a coach-athlete relationship is, is built on trust and communication. It takes time. It's not just a, you know, we're, we're, we're not programmable robots, right, like anything. Um, so I think those, are, those would be my key mentors. And, of course, I have amazing athletes that I've always – looked up to, um, there, there'd
0: be a huge long list of athletes who I've been inspired by over the years. Of course. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, it's a, it's a funny week for me in many ways. And I'm, this conversation is about you and I'm going to turn it around and make it about me for one second. But uh, the coaching relationship is really, really interesting. And I've been very lucky to not just coach some really amazing athletes, but Coach, what I feel like are really amazing people. And, you know, having this conversation with you is a, is a real privilege. And it's really nice. You know, it's a really enjoyable thing that when the coaching relationship is over, it, it shouldn't be the end of the relationship in many ways. Doesn't mean you have to talk every day. But just this last week, I, I saw Tim Reed, who I had a four year yes. coaching relationship with. And he obviously won the world championship under us. But the genuine, uh, authentic uh, bedrock of our relationship just nothing's changed and massive respect for each other really enjoyable it's similar when i see a chris Lieto, it, it, any of the athletes I had long term relationships with where the coaching relationship is is not transactional it it's it's exactly. a real journey that you're going to go on that's built on as you say trust and and mutual investment in each other and it's a very special unique relationship in many ways i think it's one that I'm really privilege to have and, and if I can give you any very small advice that you can throw away but that's as you continue your coaching career if you decide to really evolve there is don't take those coaching those relationships for granted because ultimately one thing I've realized is every single athlete that I've got to work with and maybe influence in a positive way I have drawn from and learned from those athletes as much as I have helped them and that's that's what makes it special in many ways well beyond Helping them be faster in their sport, I would say. Um, yeah. And that's maybe a nice way to, to transition. Desert Island. Uh, now, I haven't actually had a guest on the show for for quite some weeks. I've done a lot of pontificating, so so I, I'm rusty on this part of it. But whenever we have a guest on, we go quick and dirty. This is quick fire. Uh, there was a show, a radio show, a very famous radio show on the BBC called Desert Island Discs. And they used to take the guest through their five favorite albums or records that, that they had. And the meaning behind those records is a part of their life. This is our version of it. It's not quite the same. But what we have to do is imagine that you are being sent to exile on a desert island. And you have in your little luxury Hermes bag or whatever you're bringing with you, you, uh, you only get to bring three or four things. And so, um, so quick fire and I want the context, you're not allowed to say things like, uh, the Canadian national anthem or anything like that. But if you could bring one piece of music with you, what would it be? And why? Uh,
1: I would bring the Joshua Tree album by you 2 because it's my favorite all time album.
0: Good stuff. And number two, by the way, I'm, I'm going to try and stay neutral because I'm not going to judge anything. Oh, that's a very, that's a very good album. It's a, it's a good choice, so I'll give you that. But globally with <laughs> everyone, I, I try not to react. If you could only bring one book with you, what would it be and why? Well, I
1: hate to read books more than once, really, fiction books, but I love fiction. So I bring The Lord Running because it's been sitting on my bookshop and it's huge and it would keep me busy for a long time if I was stuck on an island.
0: Good stuff. And what about one other thing, anything in the world, what would it be? What would you bring with you?
1: Am I allowed you're to bring, bring a satellite, satellite phone so
0: I so can get off the island? You're very cunning and you're very driven, so I'm gonna give <laughs> it to you. <laughs> if it's charged and then yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. I <And> think <laughs> that's what I like take. <laughs> all right,
0: good stuff. You you're you're not one for solitude. And uh you have some you're on the, the beach on the boat, we're kicking you off, you're going to exile. We won't see you for too long. We, we thought forever, but you've got a satellite phone, so therefore you're going to go see us soon. But you have some final words for the world. What would your last piece of advice to the world be as you head into exile?
1: Oh, boy. Um, well, I would say that the impact you make on others is more important than what you're going to achieve individually.
0: Goodness me. Wise words. Melindy, thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks. It was great to catch up again. I hope that uh, we you can do it again soon.
0: We will. Well, there are there are certain running races coming up soon. There are certain competitions. But uh, my last words is uh, embrace your journey and, and best of luck of the journey. And I know that not just in the running world but the larger world, you've got uh, you've got a lot of fans and a lot of people supporting you for the right reasons so I I really hope that the coming year goes fantastic and you stay healthy and you keep it loving the sport that that you're you're built to run awesome will do
1: thank you very much
0: thanks thanks so much for listening this has been the purple patch podcast if you like what you hear would really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to apple Podcasts to subscribe rate and review the show The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!